You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. Herds is back. Hello. Back from Antarctica where he's been hanging with the penguins. I have many pictures of adorable penguins. I got to bring one home with me. Uh, You're not really supposed to. They tried really hard to stop me coming back at the airport, but I, I, Mm -hmm. I got through them. Uh, nary a bit bloody. Yep, you hopped on that penguin's back and rid it like a skateboard yeah, through the airport in a hijinks yeah, chase. Yeah, and, and now I own a little penguin, and that's really the happiest part of my life right now. Let's be real. Have you Listen. have you named the penguin yet? Uh, Penny. Done. Penny. Penny the okay, penguin. Nice. Shout out to Penny, <laughs> the official mascot of Death of the Reader. Yes! Look, it's been long enough. We need a mascot. This is like, this is it. I bet Penny has a gun too. Uh, We are covering Trent's last case. Chapters one to five. Herds has challenged me to solve this I've challenged you? What? I thought you were challenging me to solve Trent's last case. Oh dear. What? No, I was just making a... Hold on. Are you saying that we've both only read chapters one to five Uh, right now? Maybe. This is awkward. I guess one of us is going to have to read (laughs) the entirety of the book in the next 20 minutes or so. And it ain't gonna be me. Well, tell you what, Herds. <laughs> maybe maybe for once, at least just for this episode, I'll get ahead. I'll get ahead uh, to, you know, let you ease off your vacation. I would, ap- I would appreciate that. I'm gonna go back to hanging out with my penguin. And uh, I think for once, Herds, this episode, we can collaborate oh, rather than compete. That sounds incredible. I'm a little suspicious. So as, as far as we've gotten in to Trent's last case then... Uh, this is the story of the death of one Sigsby Manderson. Sigsby! I, I just wanted to say, Herds, before we kind of get into a summary of what's happened oh here, goodness. it's suddenly become apparent to me what The Three Taps was. Uh, and that is a spoof mm. of this novel. Interesting. I mean... Because The Three Taps... <laughs> I see where you're coming from. The Three Taps begins with this, like, lengthy treatise on the absurdity of insurance firms, while this novel a begins treatise. with this kind of j- jaded and sarcastic overview of the nature of international finance, there's a phenomenal quote in here from our detective Philip Trent saying, "I tell you frankly, I wouldn't have it wouldn't have a hand in hanging a poor devil who would let daylight into a man like Sig Manderson as a measure of social." I, I'm glad that you bring up that particular line. It might be the best line in the whole novel, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Letting so daylight good. into a man is such a like awful way of saying he was shot in the head. I know. Um, oh there are gosh. holes in him where they shouldn't be. <laughs> Uh, I, I will say when I, when I tried to sit down and read this novel though, the first, I don't even think it was the first whole chapter, but the first couple of pages really did throw me. I had such a hard time getting through that opening bit where they like are describing the financial situation of the world and it is the driest nonsense, but it sets the stage, as you say, for the wonderfully sarcastic, flippant, and yet somehow charismatic, uh, hero that is, uh, Philip Trent. I love him. The kind of backstory to this novel, Herds, which fascinated me uh, when I was first kind of doing a little bit of research into it as a potential pick for the show, Mm. uh, is that this novel is a sort of response novel to G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, which is this like weird metaphysical thriller is the term that I saw thrown around online. Uh, shout out to Jimmy Wales. Okay. I don't I don't know if it's necessarily a direct response, but it opens with a letter to Gilbert Keith Chesterton saying, My dear Gilbert, I dedicate this story to you uh, in return for the man who was Thursday. 
So there is a level of trying, like E.C. Bentley trying to, you know, have a, have a fun story, have a good yarn with his friends. Uh, he ended up being chairman of the detection club in the 1930s. But this book from 1912 uh, is said by many, Dorothy L. Sayers included, to be the first text in the golden age, if we were to be historically analytical about it, which is a really interesting thing to kind of go into this book with. Well, it definitely skews my expectations a little bit, doesn't it? To be saying that this is the the standard, the golden standard of the golden age. Well, it's it's more that I think that what people say when they mean this was the first novel of the golden age, like this is the one that laid about the tropes that became Hercule Poirot, mm. that became uh, Peter Whimsey, that became Father Brown. Mm. It might not necessarily be that this is the goldest of aged texts, but it's it's pretty clear reading it that at least compared to the description metaphysical thriller, which it was responding to, this is way more detective fiction yeah. than something by that name. I mean, it's, it's focused, right? Like, obviously, we'll, we'll get to the actual mystery in more detail later on, but mm. there is a great deal of time spent in investigating the place where the murder happened and, like, poking through his things and establishing lines of sight between rooms and the, you know, the, the habits of the, the head servant, you know, now I, I don't know that much about this novel, but I, I do know that supposedly the effort of solving this case for Trent drives him to, as, as the title is kind of inferring, <laughs> it, it drives him to believe that it will be his last case. Yeah. Which it's is true. Pretty exciting. But, this was followed up by several other Trent was. novels of him investigating <laughs> crimes. So <laughs> it kind of been that hard. Yeah, franchise detectives will never escape it's their true. fate. There is no greater purgatory than being a franchise detective and knowing everywhere you go, someone it's will true. die. No matter how tired you are, no matter how often you want to just settle down in the old country inn and not have to deal with a murder the next morning. It's just how it is. It's part of the job description. It'd be the sort of thing, I'm sure someone's made this novel where like someone has gone off into the wilderness to try and avoid their curse of being a franchise detective only to find a body in oh. the like cave that they've been sitting alone in for six months. Dude, I would I would actually love to read that. Like a, a human who's like, I'm moving so far away from society. I want nothing to do with them. I don't want to have to do any more murder mysteries. And then suddenly he's like, he's like living with the animals and then like, the, the, the lion <laughs> drops dead and the monkeys go, who killed the lion? It wasn't me. Oh, no. And he's like kind of half crazy. That's that's G.K. Chesterton right there. That's what that is. <laughs> Metaphysical <laughs> thrillers. Starring a bunch of crazy, Close crazy enough. animal characters who may or may not be real. Oh, yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. I mean, let's let's kind of get into this. Basically, uh, Sig Sigsby Sigsby Manderson yeah. is killed not far from his home. It was like out the back. I know it's it's a garden shed. That's yeah. what we're told, or next to it. The police are a little confused because, despite Sigsby being a wealthy man, there was nothing of value taken from his corpse, mm. and was shot dead through the head. But there's no real like splatter of blood, which means that he was probably shot after being killed. There's also the fact that his his false teeth aren't found on his body, which means it probably isn't suicide if he's like willing to get all yeah. dressed up in his evening dress for a morning stroll to go and commit suicide, mm. which was the style at the time uh, among the, the stockbrokers. Of course. Also that his like gold watch is in the wrong pocket. There's all these little things that kind of suggest that both he was in a great hurry that morning, but also was incredibly out of his mind, uh, which is which is quite fun. Yeah. Because, you know, whenever a murder mystery presents 
a paradox, there is a solution that will make both of them correct, right? The thing that I'm kind of curious about is the way that this is presented. I don't want to get into like Knox and Van Dyne's rules <laughs> Not yet. quite thoroughly <laughs> as yet, but you know, we're, we're presented with an interesting scope of characters because almost everyone aside from the detective is somebody's sure. butler. Yeah. Like well, he, he jokes hey, about a, it. a list of suspects. This is, the, this is my favorite yeah. part of Trent. He's so aware of the kind of novel that he's in, you know, Mertz, the like inspector who gets to the scene of the crime before he does. He says, so Trent, who do you suspect? And Trent's like, well, I suspect the cook, the maid, uh, the two manservants. I can't decide which of them I suspect more. Uh, the boot boy, <laughs> especially like he's clearly just taking the piss because the butler did it, you know? Do you think, though, that it's actually the opposite, that, mm. you know, E.C. Bentley was here pointing out the things that were obvious because it was the way that the crime had to be because it wasn't an established trope as we think of it today know. in this time? I, I definitely think that he's, he's like, pulling one over over merch. I definitely think it's supposed to make you fun of him, right? Because, like, no, totally. I, I read it. I read it the same way, but like thinking about it, you know, it predates it being a trope. So maybe it was genuinely just him trying to observe what was most likely because people die based sure, on who's maybe. close to them. Well, I guess, I guess that is a, it is a truth in real life that, you know, if you find someone who, who loved the victim, you got, you got your motive, you know, you find someone who's in finances with them, you got your motive. Anybody who's close by, that's, mm -hmm. that's number one rule. Yeah. But then of course, in a murder mystery, that makes it too obvious. So. <laughs> I'll get into the back things. half of the show. I have a suspect with very with a very loose idea of why. I'm excited. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think the other thing that's really fun is the way that we kind of go through the camaraderie of our characters. Uh, so often when we think of crime fiction, we think of like the conflicts between the core cast and where they disagree and how they kind of work out their differences. Whereas so much of the conversation between Trent and couples, best name mm -hmm. ever, uh, and, couples. and merch is that, you know, they're, they're all praising each other's work. They're going, oh, you know, you got one over me at this case back, uh, back in the day. But, you know, I reckon it was a, it was a fair shot. And I respect the work that you've done so much. How's your How's your niece doing? Yeah, I do like that aspect of um of kind of show, showing us where characters stand um, through the way they behave, rather than like explicitly telling us those sorts of things. I think that's really good. I like it when books are written well. <laughs> I know it's fantastic. Maybe it is the golden ageiest text. Is. Time time will tell, of course, as it always does. Either way, we should wrap this bit of the discussion here and head over and talk about the mystery, which we both get to solve. Oh boy! Wait, just for this week though. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing E.C. Bentley's Trent's last case. Stick around, more to come. You're on to SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm currently joined on the line by Dr. Philomena Horsley, a longtime member of Sisters in Crime Australia and the chief judge of their Davitt Awards. I have Philomena here to talk about Janet Thompson's lockdown, which just came out a couple of days ago as we're speaking. Philomena, welcome to Death of the Reader. It's wonderful to have you. Great to be here, Felix. So I guess the, the first thing uh, that we sadly must must talk about is why I'm speaking to you and not Janet, because she uh, passed away uh, not too long ago. And I guess what was the kind of the motivating factor for 
you know, yourself and the team of wonderful people involved with Sisters in Crime and Clandestine Press in getting this book across the line. Sure. Um, so um, Jano was a long-term member of Sisters in Crime and in her other life she was a very distinguished, internationally renowned philosopher. And um, she, in, in 2020, during lockdown, she thought, I'll give my... I'll try my hand at writing a fiction novel, um, which she did. So the novel is based in the 2020 COVID scenario in Australia. Um, and then it got very close to completion and um, just, a, you know, in March, April, Jenna was diagnosed with multiple um, brain tumours and died in June. And at that point the book was basically ready to go and we just thought to honour her we would publish and launch, not we would publish, Clandestine Press would publish and Sisters in Crime would launch. And um, it was a, both a memorial service for Jenna around her amazing, you know, um, attributes academically in sports area, um, but also as a book launch. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I loved most about this book is it reminded me of a time back in 2020 uh, when we were looking at the sorts of people that society underestimates, looking at things like Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club or RWR McDonald's The Nancys. And it was it was just so fantastic to me how much this novel just oozes nostalgia in this incredible way where it's not an attainable nostalgia. The book does a lovely job of putting us in the contemporary space of 2020 in aged care during COVID and back, you know, decades, decades when Jenny was a young um, teenager and her mother was murdered. And what's, I think, quite compelling about the book is, and in some ways nerve-wracking, is that it puts us in the space of aged care and we know that, you know, 75% of deaths in COVID from COVID in 2020 were older people in uh, primarily in aged care. And for them, the experience of being locked down um, really um, is a compelling and, and makes a very tense narrative. I think the power of the book is saying, you know, don't underestimate older women. Mm. They've had a whole life of experience. They've got great knowledge and wisdom. And Meg calls upon, you know, her philosophy background. Oh, it's so good. In the book. <laughs> like, you know, she she introduces in a whole range of ways, you know, she mentions Socrates and Epicurus and Simone de Beauvoir and Spinoza and Marcus Aurelius, but in really easily digestible ways because as she's trying to unpeel this mystery that she's been sent in undercover to solve in the aged care, She's drawing on the knowledges of those philosophers to kind of give her strength, give her, give her some wisdom and a, a capacity to kind of be stoic and hang in there when really she, her life is threatened, you know, clearly during the book, you know, because she's she's in an aged care facility where things are not going that well. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I thought that it was also so indicative that Jana like still loved philosophy while writing this book. You know, it wasn't as yes. though it was, it was something you know, Meg was so passionate about. And through that, you could see her passion. And I just had so much fun seeing someone excited about a topic that is so often like books and schoolrooms sort of stuff. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in, re in uh, real life, Jana, 
was a great teacher and you can see it. Like, you know, here she is, a renowned academic who's written, you know, five books, the last of which, you know, is still regarded as one of the great books in terms of looking at writing historical wrongs. And yet, you know, she's written a real page turner. She's written, you know, a language in language that's accessible. She's written characters that remind many of us of people we've known. And um, she's really managed to merge her personal, you know, life um, in terms of academia with the whole crime genre and give it a twist, as you said yourself, give it a new twist with different kind of focus, a very rare setting in terms of aged care, and um, manages to ramp up the tension. At the same time, I think she keeps a real wit and humour going. I mean, just generally, the the tense moments in this uh, do have that that just madcap flavour. There's, for example, a, a sort of antagonist character in the novel, uh, who spends most of the time reciting ph- philosophy incorrectly, much to Meg's chagrin, <laughs> which is just a beautiful way of like undercutting the tension in a in, in just the the crimiest way. You know, it serves so beautifully to distract you from what's going on, but is great in doing so. And I thought that was a real treat. I, I agree. Like you know, there's a couple of characters who are a bit up themselves and. And Meg certainly isn't, even though she's clearly had a professorial life that she's retired from. And I think one of the joys of the book is the diversity of the characters of the other residents as well as, you know, some of the staff. So you get, and some of them like you you think of in one way and by the end of the novel you've flipped around or understood. And she really captures some of those difficulties. You know, the classic thing, when the first the first day me goes out to have dinner and she sits down at a table and she's clearly scolded and told mm-hmm. off, you know, that's my chair. You know, some of those things we all experience in life, which are petty bureaucracies and hierarchies, yep. still continue in, in this particular kind of institutional setting. Would, would you believe that the elderly are regular people? What, what, <laughs> what, what a shocking twist. The other thing I think that was one of the themes was the power of friendship, Um, but also, and this is, I think, really good, the power of developing new relationships, new friendships, um, you know, late in life as well. It's not like you're stuck in the past and you're stuck in nostalgia. If if you're, you know, someone who's engaged in the world socially and, you know, in, in a range of ways, you know, you're going to continue to make friends as well as enemies, clearly. <laughs> and just it just speaks to the vibrancy of old age as well as the wisdom and the and the the you know the depth of lived experience, but the capacity to change. I think that is a wonderful summary of the book. Philomena, thank you so much for coming on to talk about lockdown and for sharing the love of this book, because I think it is a wonderful gift that Jana has left us and well worth a read if you if you like really socially conscious crime fiction. And, and could I add that people can order it through um, Clandestine Press. So Clandestine Press, go, just Google it, find the website, and you can order a copy of the book. Well, I will let you go, Philomena. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Felix. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing chapters one to five of E.C. Bentley's Trent's Last Case, said by some, famed authors of the Golden Age included, to be the first text of the Golden Age of murder mystery fiction. To be 
the best novel ever written. I, you know, maybe so. We'll, we'll have to find out and prove that over the course of today's activities. But Herds, we've accidentally buffooned ourselves into neither being the expert. So we have the odd opportunity to solve something together. We do. We do. I'm a little scared about this one, but yes. I don't know. I don't know how the, the points work out for this one. I think I'll just let you take all the points for this. Oh, okay. But I, I, I did want to pose you a theory and see where you kind of run with it. Sure. I, the first time I was reading through this text, I came across the, the name Marlowe, mm-hmm. uh, which is the secretary of Sigsby Manderson, the victim of the case. And I went, oh, yeah, of course, just like Philip Marlowe. Uh-huh. And then about two and a half chapters later, I thought to myself, wait a minute, Philip Marlowe was written like 20 years after this or more. Uh, so I would like to pose to you the theory that Philip Marlowe is named after the most relevant character from Trent's last case. From Philip Trent's last case, yep. And thus, with no other evidence, <laughs> I would say that Marlowe is the culprit. I mean, I like it. I'll tell you what I like about uh, Marlowe as the killer is that for one thing- mm. He has a similar name to Martin. I'm just saying maybe they're brothers and we don't even know it. I'm just, look, Ooh. there's clearly some maybe, some backwards and forwards maybe going on there. they are the, the twins that we have been unduly prepared I'm for. I'm just saying if Mar, Marlowe, it's, it's object association, right? If Mar, Mar sorry, Martin <laughs> is trustworthy and 100% off the table, then Marlowe, we think of him as being in the same position. It's like what Trent was saying. We're like, I suspect both of the butlers equally because mm. they're the, basically the same character. <laughs> There's a lot of M's in this story. I am just saying. Miss Morgan and Mrs. Manderson and Mabel. Look, there's a lot of M's. Yeah. Dial M for murder, as they say. Look, I love how clearly Man- Mr. and Mrs. Manderson are up to no good. They're like trying to yeah. end their marriage, it looks like. And clearly something has gone horribly wrong. This is true. Like, you know, Marlo is the first character that we meet when we arrive more or less on the scene of the crime. He, he says so that he was expecting Trent. Yeah. Mm. But I, I do want to say I, I am kind of getting the vibe the more I think about it. And maybe he is the the obvious scapegoat. Oh. Maybe he's being set up by someone else because it, it's so clear. Maybe, you know. Maybe the reason that the crime scene is so polished is because Marlowe, <laughs> faithful secretary as he was, saw his his lordship dead mm. and was like, oh, no, I can't have my lordship's body found like this. So he went to, like, tidy the crime scene, you know, dress his corpse while it was down to make him look more dignified than he was actually murdered. But he didn't put in his uh, fake teeth. You kidding well, me? Because he had you to think, flee the oh. scene before he was caught and actually made suspect. That's terrible. Then he didn't, he didn't get to put in his false teeth. That's like the most important thing. Also, he dressed him in his evening dress. Or, well, I suppose he'd already be dressed at that point, wouldn't he? Because he would have been <laughs> since the night before. But the thing is, is I don't really know who to suspect. Because as I was saying at the start, our, our characters are all the butlers, plus our detectives and the police. So the only kind of Noxian character that we can really pick is our Watson couples. But what mm. what would couples have to do with this? Like, you know, it's very clear that none of them like Sigsby Manderson, but they're not exactly ruminating reason for murder so much as just distasteful of the stock market. Well, you know what character is off on their own without a couple? I'm just saying, Mr. Couples. It's funny. It's funny that we keep saying that word. I'm Uh... just saying, I'm just saying, what if that old man, what if he is in fact a murderer? He's trying to save his poor, sweet stepdaughter, niece from a horrible life. That's why we spend so much time with him so that we can grow to empathize with him. And then he'll be he'll be he'll be revealed 
to have, to have acted again. Yeah. To to save his to save his niece. That's what it's going to be. Yeah, it's it, it it makes sense. I don't really like what is the relation that we've established between Mabel and Sixby Manderson? That they married and he was much older than her. Yeah. And it's not necessarily they were forced into a relationship. Clearly she wanted to marry him. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably wasn't for the right reasons. It's Martin again. He's talking about how he heard the conversation on the phone or something. How they, they're going to end it all. Mr. Manderson says he's going to end it all. And this was shortly after a conversation with Mrs. Manderson. It seems like things are heating up between the two of them and they're finally going to like end their marriage uh, in one way or the other. That's like the implication there. It, but it's also interesting... You were saying at the start of the episode today that Manderson, you know, he didn't bleed out from the gunshot no, because he was already dead he was by then. definitely already dead before they put the bullet in him. That is 100% the case. Why then was he shot? What are they obfuscating by shooting him? That's a great question. I, I would say that they're trying to make it look like a suicide. I want to say that even in the first chapter, it is like, it's like a jump to the future. It's like- yeah. They say it was a suicide in the end. That's that's what the outcome is of the case. But maybe I'm making that up. It also feels like there, there would be other ways to stage a suicide. Because, you know, they wouldn't have necessarily had a great suppressor, for example. No. To silence the sound of the shot. Well, then, this is the question, right? Like, where did the gunshot take place? Because um, if the garden shed isn't that far from the house, someone would have heard that. Unless there was, you know, a thunderstorm going on at the time. Then it would be impossible to hear. <laughs> so we all know. Sorry, I saw where you were yeah. going with that bit and I jumped on you. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hate it. It's Listen, we bit. can't talk about the bit. No, we can't, talk, we about can't talk about the bit. We're banned from talking mm. about the bit. Those I, of you who know about garden sheds and distorted faces know the yeah, bit. Yeah, garden sheds where someone is shot in the head in such a way that we know they're 100% dead and can identify the body. 100% dead. Um, 100% certainty of death. But their face was all uh, smashed up. So, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't well, it their wasn't, body. It wasn't smashed up, though. It was a very clean hole. or actually wasn't very much blood. Are we reading the same novel, Flakes? I don't know. No, I'm so, <laughs> so sorry. I'm anyway. getting a little confused here. You know, I've read so many books that are based they on They all this. just blur together. They just blur um, together. <laughs> Start picturing, you know, all sorts of magical See, I, on. <laughs> I believe that... Most likely, Manderson was smothered in his sleep or mm-hmm. tripped or something. The only clue we have, because obviously, like, I- I'm saying that the gunshot is is superfluous to the actual yes, yes. death of the character. I would agree. The only other clue we have is that the wrists were scratched and bruised, which is a bizarre I, problem to have. I want to say he was dragged somewhere. I want to I say that the corpse was, like, yeah. dragged from somewhere else. And that's- like, with a rope around his arms or yeah. something. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Or maybe he just, like, had his arms out behind him as he was being dragged by the feet. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think that's, like, fine. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the, the first big mystery that I'm, like, barking up against is, like, who, like, not, not who killed him, but, like, how is he killed? Because clearly these marks are you know, signs of, of doctoring the situation or signs. Well, I mean, that's it. That's what they are. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would probably go with the smothering just because it's the least likely death to actually cause any, you know, additional marks. My suspicion at the moment, having thought about it over the course of this discussion mm. is that Marlowe is probably trying to frame himself ah, to save Mrs. Madison, perhaps? Maybe, because, you know, we have several characters come to Mrs. Madison's defense, including one of the they do. gaggle of journalists at the start of the story. Yeah. So, 
perhaps where we're kind of doing a like taking back power from the powerful man sort of thing. Yeah. You know, Mabel being like the the dame that has been saved from this cycle of terror from a wealthy man. Do you, do you think what it is is that Mr. Madison saying, you know, we must end this? And it's that he he tried to kill her and she fought back. Is that what it might be? Maybe. And now everyone's trying to like cover it up. That would be bizarre. The thing the thing that I, I want to kind of close this episode on is the thought that I was having while reading this novel where I was very much in this book not struck by the quaintness of it as you often get when you're reading older crime fiction. Sure. Uh, I, I don't feel as though I need to almost talk down on this novel for being old and predictable. No. Uh, no. Be- because it's not playing to the same trope book that I know and expect, right? It's kind of setting its own structure a bit more. So these sorts of things where I'm like, oh, well, that's a bit modern. Maybe it's not. Maybe we're Maybe just it's all not. backwards. Also, who is the lady in black? Is it Mrs. Manderson? I need to know. This is important to me. Is the lady in black Mrs. Manderson's ult- alternate crime fighting outfit where she kills, it has to she be. kills men in? I'm just saying. It has to be. It has to be. <laughs> it has to be. I, compl- I completely agree. I'm so excited. Anyway, herds. Yeah. I'm going to take a wild guess and say, just based on the length of this book, that we're going to go chapter six to eleven next okay. week. That sounds good. I may, I may issue an, a, a correction, but we'll, we'll, we'll probably be all right with that. Uh, and I wish you the best of luck as I hammer my way to the end of this story, and you. Uh, take all the credit for the solving that you did today. Uh, definitely not me. Look, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with taking some points. <laughs> I'm down for it. That's what I deserve is more points to keep the battle interesting. That's how it works. I love it. Oh, by the way, you got two points from Lachlan for Cargo of Eagles. Yay. Thanks, Lachlan. Wait, how did, why did I get them? Was that for him doing good? or That was that was for him doing good. Oh, good. Thank you, Lachlan. Let's have you on the show next time and you can you can get me more points. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> this is Death of a Reader. We are talking E.C. Bentley's Trent's Last Case, the golden ageist of golden agey novels, allegedly, here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. This is 2SER 107.3 and we'll catch you with chapters 6 to 11 of that next week. Let's go. We're out of here. Where's Penny gone? <laughs>